0: Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial, and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Rowena Morrow had short stints in government and corporate organisations before starting to do the Master of Strategic Foresight at Swinburne in 2002, and she ended up staying at Swinburne for almost a decade. Her time there encompassed being first a student, then an editor, and then lastly she was a teacher. Post the Masters, she founded Prospective Services and started Foresight Consulting, and she continued that for about a decade until it felt a bit stale to her. Then Rowena moved into local government and the transformation space. Roles in innovation, customer experience, digital and business transformation followed. Her practice in all these areas rested on her foresight thinking she had learned, and they required her to support the people around her as they developed the complexity of their thinking and practice. Currently, she is working for herself, creating a new business, and finding people to play with. Welcome to FuturePod, Rowena.
1: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: Okay, first question we start people with is, what's your foresight story or future story? How did you get into the community?
1: So I guess like every good story about the future, it always makes sense in hindsight rather than when looking forward. So the story looking backward is that it was sort of inevitable, really, I guess, through a, an interest in the future in my undergraduate training. And then I did postgrad looking at the future of suburbanisation in Melbourne. And then I got a job in the Federal Public Service. The first project I worked on was looking at the future of customs processing to 20, 2040. And I think this was 1993 or 4. So, you know, looking backward, it all, you know, makes sense. It all lines up. But the lived experience of was, of course, not that. <laughs> the lived experience was trying to find things that interested me. I've always been very curious about how things work and what things might look like moving forward and I've always been a ferocious reader of science fiction and fantasy so those things all coming together meant that I had a an attraction to thinking differently about what you know how things could be in the workplace, or how things could be in the in the country, I found the foresight course I was actually had had one child, so I had a small baby we'd been overseas with her and my husband for a year, and I'd come back pregnant with my second child, and I give you that context because looking back, I can't actually believe that I look looking for a master's course with two small children. So I found the Strategic Foresight course online on the Swinburne website and I was actually looking for an MBA that taught diversity. So One of my last roles previous to having my first child was to set up a diversity program in a large multinational and I really enjoyed that process and thought, right, well maybe I need to get into diversity in some way, shape or form and go back into organisations to do that. And while I was on the Swinburne website, I found the MBA and then somehow found this Master of Science and Strategic Foresight. And I think, to be honest, the thing that pinged it for me was My mum had been a scientist, or is a scientist, and had been doing science at ANU in the 60s when there weren't too many women doing it. And when I'd been growing up, I think it was one of her greatest disappointments that I didn't have a scientific bone in my body. So I saw this Master of Science, Strategic Foresight, and thought, slam! (laughs) I'll have a Master of Science, that'll be hilarious. So um, I went to the information night and walked in, and in a room of 40 people, so I grew up in Canberra. So moving to Melbourne in my early 20s, I didn't know anybody in Melbourne, so I had to establish a network, et cetera, et cetera. I walked into this room of 40 people in 2001, and sitting there was a guy that I'd worked with in customs, sort of five years before, Luke Naismith, and sitting next to him or near him was a guy I'd gone to high school with in Canberra, Andrew Winberg. And I actually couldn't believe that I moved completely to a different city, had, you know, decided to do this master's that I'd never heard of, or at least find out something about it. And I walked in and there were two people I knew in the room. So I don't know that I read too much into that. I just found it quite amusing, I guess. And then Richard started talking about what we'd be doing and what we'd be studying, and I was hooked, absolutely hooked. So day one of the course, I don't think I've ever been so scared. (laughs) I hadn't slept the night before. I had a six-month-old who wasn't sleeping and a a three-year-old. And yeah, I walked in and just felt like I'd come home. So it was, I guess, the first time where I'd felt like I could be in a group of people and be totally myself. And the the things that would come into my head would could come straight out of my mouth, and that would actually be okay. I didn't need to filter quite so much. So the way Richard taught the masters was very much you you learned your way through the material. So he would present stuff, ask you questions. But I guess for me the most confronting thing was that I'd I'd felt I'd had a fairly good handle on the world and my place in it and what I understood the world to be and realised very, very quickly that I knew very little. (laughs) And that was confronting, but also really energising that there was a whole world out there that I actually didn't know anything about. So I spent four very happy years. It took me four years to do the three-year degree, but four very happy years really just immersing myself thinking back, knowing you're obviously asking this question, there were days and days where I would put the kids into childcare between 8.30 and 5.30, and that's the time I had to write a 5,000-word essay. So I think every one of those 5,000-word essays was knocked out in a day. (laughs) All the research was done in the lead up, but I got very good at writing well to time, which is actually a skill I've kept. So yeah, looking back and we um, started our consulting practice in 2003. So Peter and I um, started that work, and that came off the back of a um, fairly harrowing experience in the advanced professional practice unit, which was one of the capstone units of the masters when I went through it. Which was a, a unit where Peter and Joe had set up a scenario where we had to have a, a client and come up with a we had. F- five days basically to come up with a process for a client and then we had a room full of real people that we had to present this process to. So the process or the the scenario was that someone had rung us and instantly decided that we needed to do a a process around the future of fashion in Melbourne or something and it was a very short notice type of process and we knew nothing about, well, I knew very little about fashion. and there were going to be a group of people in the room on the Friday or Thursday, may have been, on, um, who were from the fashion industry and we had to facilitate them through a foresight process. Again, I don't think I've ever been so scared. So we went through days, you know, as a cohort, days of, I don't know what to do, I can't do this. Okay, we'll try that. No, that sounds like rubbish. So just days of talking about how we were going to do it and what we were going to do and what we thought the outcomes would be. Finally, we got up and we did it. And the big revelation for me was that I didn't need to be a content expert. What I needed to be was a process expert. And that then drove the practice for me from then on, was how do I get really, really good at doing process and taking people through the steps that they need to go through to develop their thinking about the future and help guide that rather than you know becoming the expert on the future of X or the future of Y. So from that, I guess yeah, it was 10 years of... Of consulting of various types, again very processed based. Occasionally we'd do a Delphi or some scenarios or something with some content but mostly it was processes with people investigating, creating pr- preferred futures and um, it was awesome actually. So the work I've always loved, the thing I don't like and you know the challenge for me now is to create the process around the business development. So, (laughs) selling the future is hard, would be my reflection on that. We did very well in the GFC. The GFC, um, the global financial crisis, caught a lot of very smart people off guard, and that helped us basically shorten our sales funnel, which up until that point was about 18 months from the first coffee to getting our piece of work. We could shorten it to about six weeks, I think, through that period, because smart people had had the rug pulled out from under them. So Peter and I would turn up and say, oh, you could think differently. You could do this. You could do that. And rather than their first point of call being resistance, which is what it usually was, there was much more of an openness around, oh, you're right. I actually didn't see this coming. What do I need to do differently? So, you know, things were pretty good between about 2008 and 2011. And then, again, we got comfortable as a a society, I guess, and our organisations reflect that. And it became harder. And one of the last clients we had, I just found so dismal that I thought, no, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) So I, I went looking for something else. And that something else was innovation, business transformation and digital. And I guess the thing I found in that space which is fascinating, it is all about the future. Of course it is. And it's all about people and how they think and what they believe in and what they value and how they try to work that through and what that looks like in the future and and how they manage the external pressures they can see coming at them around technology and change and how they start to talk about themselves and their organisations in those future states. And it's just absolutely fascinating because it is foresight and it's foresight – in individuals, with groups, and then in whole organisations, it's just called different things. So I've really enjoyed that for the last five and a half, six years. I've been working in local government, which has been fantastic because they're basically a conglomerate organisations of 150 services. So, you know, I'd be working with nurses or accountants or engineers or writers or filmmakers. You know, we've got all sorts of people working in those organisations. And I guess, again, being a process expert, you know, moving into design thinking, using Lego, getting into lean, looking at how we do customer experience. You know, all these things at its, at their core, I think, done well, talk about how the future can be different and how we might lean into that and learn into that. Yeah, I guess that's, that's where I'd like to be now is um, working with organisations around how they can be different. And, you know, the words that make sense for people are around, well, what does transformation look like? You know, what does digital, digital dis- disruption look like for us? How are we going to deal with a VUCA world? All those things that are you know, sort of parleyed around, but a lot of the ways that we try to think about them aren't going to be useful, and that's where foresight comes in.
0: So Rowena what advice would you say give yourself if you could actually look back to yourself when you started as a consultant as to how you get started? What I mean there is how do you both get the funnel going, but also build the confidence that you can build the funnel.
1: So I guess the way we started was probably the best way I would think. Like I wouldn't change that is that we started with a soft start. So it was somebody that we knew who got us in to do something that they couldn't do themselves basically. So It made me laugh uproariously because the scenario that Peter had given us in the Advanced Professional Practice Unit was that somebody was flying overseas, couldn't do a process and rang us, the group, to step in at the last minute. Um, Susan Oliver rang Peter just before she flew overseas to ask him to do a process at the last minute, which um, I thought was ironic and beautiful. (laughs) actually. But what that gave us was basically a warm audience. It was a group of people at a school that she'd been working with. They were primed and ready to go. And really, all we needed to do was turn up and do the work. So that was good on two fronts. One was that we didn't have to cold call and sell, because at that point, I don't think I would have been capable of making the value proposition. But the second part of that was that we just needed to focus on the process. And I think Looking back, the advanced professional practice that we got in the Masters was really helpful for that. You know, that visceral experience of understanding how to hold a space and facilitate foresight, but also having the the opportunity to try some stuff. And really, that's what we did for the first three to five years was try stuff. And we would very rarely run the same process twice we would always be tweaking or changing or doing something completely different. And that was because of, I guess, two things. One was I get bored very quickly and I suspect Peter does too. So there was a curiosity part. But the other thing was that every organisation context was different. And because we weren't doing a cookie cutter approach, we were doing a responsive outcomes driven approach that was Why things were always different, why we were always trying to develop our craft. The advice I would give myself, which I don't think I did particularly well last time round, and I'm going to try very hard to do better this time, is to actually create a funnel, a sales funnel, and focus on business development and prospecting with as much energy as I focused on the rest of it. And the reason I didn't do that is because I'm not particularly good at selling myself. So I can sell other people, absolutely, but I'm not particularly good at selling myself. So you know, this time round i'm learning from that experience and you know i'm doing customer segmentation i'm creating a sales funnel i'm thinking about how i'm going to manage clients and customers as they come towards me i'm looking at what my warm and cold leads are looking like and how i'm go- you know what free material i'm going to offer up and and then what the stages of my marketing funnel are going to be so all of that we sort of did instinctually, I guess, the first time round. This time I'm trying to do it more conscientiously and consciously. I have no idea if it'll work because I still think one of the, the really hard things is selling the future because it's so abstract. And for many people, um, the first time they'd ever thought about thinking about it was when they'd had a coffee with us for an hour. So there is an inherent challenge to this consulting model, and I think getting started is around who you know in the first instance and I know you know coming out of the master's program at Swinburne we were really had always and I think we, you continue to do it right to the end was encouraging people just to get out there and try some stuff and so you know people who had consulting practices to have them buddied up with people who had never done anything before or you know to find someone that you like to work with and just pitch some work so I did work with um, Jose Ramos and Josh Floyd very early on and Gretchen Young And yeah, we just pitched some stuff and did some stuff, and it was great, yeah, really great. So I think yeah, sometimes you just got to hold your nose and jump into the water.
0: And you've also had the experience of being an of what I call an organisational foresight practitioner. And can you talk maybe to how people, when they get a chance to say step in in an organisational role, have you got advice for yourself again about how you would say to someone they can they can do foresight in an organisation they need to live in and have
1: relationships in? I wouldn't pitch it as foresight. So there's something in organisations, there's a power dynamic that's set up, in my experience, if you wander around an organisation talking about the future to people. So either you end up in the, in the corner behind the pot plant, so you get completely railroaded into a corner and no one listens to you, or you get ejected by the white blood cells of the organisation. So the way, I guess... I've seen it work both for myself and for other people is to wrap foresight in the language of the problems that the organization has. So foresight, we know foresights the answer. So yes, but people don't know that the problem they have will be solved by foresight. The problem they have will be solved by process improvement or by getting a piece of new technology or by hiring differently or workforce planning differently or by positioning in a market differently. Whatever it is, that's the conversation you need to have. So Organizationally, the way that I have done it is to wrap foresight in the language of innovation because the organization I was working with at the time had an issue around not being able to innovate. Today, I'm wrapping it in the language of change because no organization, maybe an overstatement, very few organisations are doing change very well. And for me, foresight is actually one of those levers that we can pull to help people move themselves through the change process much more quickly than other things. So I guess there's that. There's also your classic coalition of the willing, you know, find people who are your early adopters. The thing that I did bring from foresight that I hadn't seen in other domains was, yes, you want the right people on the bus, to quote Jim Collins, but actually drive the bus away. If people aren't on it, take who you've got and go with them and actually just leave whoever else isn't willing to come on board behind for a while until you get you know, enough happening that they feel comfortable and can move with you. I also was able to bring in the language around energy and I've noticed that's coming up more and more in corporate Australia, but in 2013, 2014, it wasn't particularly common, but people get it. So go where the energy is and if it's too difficult, then don't do it actually look at the resistance you're getting, unpack it, but also understand that there will be a way that is easier and might get you to where you want to go. The thing that foresight's given me that I've I noticed that I do, that other people I've worked with struggle with, is I'm quite path agnostic. I can set a goal, that's fine, and lots of people can do that, but how we get to the goal, I'm really not wedded to. Well, I've noticed with very senior people I've worked with, We set a goal and we set a pathway and we're not moving off that pathway. So I find that really interesting because when I speak to other people who have done the foresight or think this way, they're pathway agnostic as well. So there's something about that that I find organisations need more of.
0: Rowena, next question is around your favourite processes or methods or concepts that have that have been core to your practice.
1: So this is a great question to think about because I think there are some things in my practice that are so woven, so well, woven so deeply into the foundations of them that I haven't actually stopped to think about what they were. So, one of the things I did early on was start to put together a library of foresight books. So the whole wall of my lounge room is taken up with foresight books. So I was able to go in there a couple of days ago and have a look at what I've actually got on the shelf and what are the things that are have shaped my practice, I guess. So for me, I mean, it's, it's hope theory, Sharma's theory, you, Wilbur's four quadrants. Yes, that is never coming out of my brain. I don't think it's going to be in there for the rest of my life. Systems thinking, spiral dynamics, social cycle theory and developmental psychology. So I think that's the group of theoretical frames that I've put together into my practice. And if I had to sort of say, well, what is that? I think it's holistic evolutionary change for individuals and groups across time. So I see that. So I see patterns and I go looking for patterns. So I have to remember that's what I do because, you know, it's always good to remember what your default is. So I guess mixed into that is a whole load of history. I'm absolutely fascinated with history because, you know, because I see patterns. I see so many things happening time and time again. I love the work of Sarkar. So in terms of who's inspired me, the obvious, I guess, are terms of Richard Slaughter, Peter Haywood and Joe Forrest, because they're the people I worked with most closely. Outside of that group, Sahale's work, just love the work of Sahel. So anything he does really, <laughs> I just think is fantastic. So CLA I've used and loved, Sarkar game and Sarkar's theories I've also found really helpful in organisations. I guess as well the language of the future. So Polak's work around the image of the future is fundamental for me. And from that sort of space, I guess I jump off in into, you know, what are the tools? So Future's Triangle's always been a big one, which is funny because it's literally just a triangle. But I just love it. It's so useful and can be used in so many different ways. CLA again and the Pollack game. I guess for me, where I've seen groups really engage and tell the story of their lives, either from a community setting or an organisational setting, those two games have been know instrumental in helping people unpack for themselves. I find Lego does the same thing funnily enough. Lego serious play in organisations is gold. I've gotten groups to go places where I didn't think it would be possible to get them in an organisation with Lego. So I guess for me to wrap that up the processes that work in my practice or the ones that I'm drawn to are processes that require some sort of embodiment. So I want people up on their feet actually embodying something either about the past, the present or the future. When I've worked with other facilitators that I've brought into organisations to do things that I wanted to be a part of, they're the people I bring in too, are people who have embodied practice. So in terms of, I guess, you know, well, what does that actually look like? The things that I think about when I'm putting together processes or where I'm, you know, choosing tools, because you can do anything. You know, it is it isn't an infinite toolbox. What I go looking for is, you know, clarity from the client or the people I'm working with or myself if I'm an internal consultant about what the outcome is we're looking for. So you know, how far do I want to move people? How high do I want to put the temperature in the room? What is it that I want people to walk away with? Which isn't to say what's the outcome I'm looking for because I'm often not that clear. It's more about can I move people from X to Y or A to B or whatever. And so then there's for me an energetic process. So there's a plan for the day, you know, and people will come in in the morning and they've got their heads back, you know, with the kids who have had a tantrum as they've walked out the door or they've kicked the dog or whatever's happened as they've, you know, come in. So there's something about settling them into the room, starting to open up the room and create the space for whatever that looks like. So for some groups, you need to create a space of trust and love. For others, they're there and you can take them straight away and then really hit them with something before they've had their morning coffee, because I find they're in slight state of weakness. (laughs) have a break, then come back and start to unpack what happens. So again, it's that energetic piece about, you know, as a workshop participant, where am I at any point of the day? One of the rules I have is I don't have carb filled lunches, because as soon as you carb people up, they're asleep by 2.33 o'clock. So I won't have alcohol. If we're doing an overnighter, the morning of the next day, I can basically write that off because people have had alcohol with dinner. And so it takes some time. to get. So it's broader than even the tools it's you know where are you what are the the circumstances in which you're operating I've been in processes where the room has been absolutely rubbish like I did one which was had no windows whatsoever so needed to change the process to keep people energized and up because they are all, all going to fall asleep so I think it's for me because foresight is so much about people trusting you trusting the process and bringing them their whole selves into the room the sort of foresight I do I really need to be thinking much more broadly than just about, you know, the process and the tools.
0: Rowena, the next question is around what is is catching your attention and energising your thinking as you see the future emerging?
1: So I guess the first thing is that I'm finding it very difficult to take long time frames. So when I first started doing this work, I guess we were looking at, you know, how do you predict or how do you look at foresight futures into the next 20, 50, 100 years. So I did a lot of reading and a lot of research and a lot of thinking about how to create visions or snapshots of the future that were 30, 50, 80 years out and early 2000s that didn't seem so difficult to do. I found that over the last five years trying to do that for myself I'm seeing the future I guess I can't go out as far. It feels like for me that we're coming to the edge of something and it's I guess one of the things that I'm alive to is that You know, we're on a a biosphere, there is no way, (laughs) and we've already baked one and a half degrees of warming. Now, I find that us not talking about the climate emergency is doing my head in, and I I just, I'm no longer willing to work in organisations or work with organisations that won't talk about the climate emergency. I'm actually not even calling it climate change anymore, I think we're so far past that that it is almost to the level of cognitive dissonance on a global scale that this is not what we're talking about every day, all day. So that's what I'm alive to is that I think we should be on a war footing if we want the civilization we have to continue. Now, having said that, I understand that things have never been as good as they are now. I understand that there are more people out of poverty than there have ever been in the, you know the whole of human history. I understand that as a woman... I have never had it so good. You know, my gender has never in Western societies has never had it so good. We've still got, you know, room to make up and develop the developing world. But so I get that. I get that it's never been so good. So I guess I'm also alive to a frustration that comes with that is that we've never had it so good. We've got technology that we've never seen before, and yet we still can't manage to get out of our own way. So I guess for me, it's I'm looking for those signs that things are changing. So I'm if On Twitter, I'm looking for the people who have who have said they're not going to fly anymore as part of their job. Now, not flying is not going to fit, fix the climate emergency, but often those people who don't fly get to that after they've done the sustainability to, at home, after they're vegan or vegetarian. You know, there's a whole load of things they do first before they take the quite socially unacceptable step of not flying anywhere. I have to say most of them are actually in Europe as well. So once the Australians start saying they're not flying, then I know we're going to get somewhere. <laughs> So there's that. I guess I'm alive to the circular economy conversation because that's happening in mining, it's happening in the plastics industry, it's happening in forestry and other places that you wouldn't necessarily expect it to happen. I'm looking for the regenerative um, agriculture conversation, which is starting to happen much more widely in Australia and in other arid countries. So, you know, I am seeing, I guess, systemic change. I notice. Just today, Otto Scharm has renamed his transforming capitalism to societal transformation. So he's really stepped it up as well. So I guess the people that, you know, watching the people I, I admire, and I put Josh Floyd into this group, you know, really starting to hammer around what are the things we have to do. The Irish Climate Minister, or the Irish Minister for Climate, came out in the last week saying that it's a civilizational challenge. You know, things are absolutely getting to the point where we have to do something drastic and that the changes that we're facing are radical. So I guess for me, and this probably explains why that timeline has shifted from, you know, looking like we had all the time in the world to looking like we don't have very much time at all, was that back in 2000, 2001 to 2003, when I started to really understand What the challenge was for our civilization, both from a climate, economic, social, you know, all those three bases, what that challenge started to look like through the work of Richard Slaughter. I had to go through a process, of, I guess, of grieving, really, you know, grieving that that exponential growth and, you know, that my life and my children's lives would continue to get better, that in fact, that dynamic looks like it's changing And that my kids and my grandchildren, if my children ever have children, you know, their lives might be actually much worse than mine or my parents. And that's difficult. Then the next thing I needed to do was get my head around whether or not as a species I felt we needed to survive. And I still oscillate on that. Every so often I think a good pandemic wouldn't be a bad thing. Because really, sometimes, you know, 65% of the species on the planet are either extinct or heading towards it. It's like, really? Really? at what point did our species think we had that power or that authority to make those decisions so i'm actually i'm actually angry so i think that's that's part of it too is that you know one of the things i've noticed with foresight is that once your emotional state starts to rise your ability to see and stay open truncates so one of the things i'm grappling with is you know I know it won't be disastrous because that's not how the future rolls out. So it won't be we go off a cliff and all of a sudden it's all, you know, zombies and everybody disappears. It won't be that. And almost a belief in that disaster state is looking for certainty. So what I'm trying to do is stay open to. What are the things that need to change? And I've articulated those. Where are the sources of hope that I see? And I I go actively looking for those because I have to. Otherwise, I just want to curl up in a ball and not get out of bed. And where are the places that I can intervene to try and make a difference? And that's the practice piece is, you know, who can I help that I can see looks like they've got a, you know something going that I could be part of or who can I have a t- you know a chat to and how can I phrase the conversation in such a way that they might shift their thinking a bit or whatever it is. I guess the reflection for me over the last 15 years is it hasn't been the big things, it's always been in the micro moments. So it's always been the one-on-one conversations where somebody's shifted their thinking just a little bit that then they've run off and done something quite amazing actually. So that's, I think that's the opportunity. I don't know how to do that at scale. So that's what I'm trying to investigate now, I guess, is, you know, how do you have those micro moments with thousands of people at a time? That's interesting to me. I don't know how to do that. I look at the work that Kristen Alford's doing over in South Australia with her mod museum, and I think, you know, that's really interesting because you've, you're starting to get people to think differently and then you start to introduce, well, what could you be thinking about? Because there's something around how we have to think, not not just what we're thinking about. So I'm working with a group at the moment who are looking at an evolutionary model of culture development in organisations, which is all about helping people to think with greater complexity. And they work with business predominantly because business can pivot faster than government. And I find that interesting because I think you know, we've run out of time whereas we had 15 years back when i first started becoming aware of you know how the future might be different we now have maybe 10 and probably not it's probably closer to 5 and i just i find that so sad because i just think the last 15 years we could have been doing so much more than we have been and in fact what we have done is just build more stuff buy more shit throw more stuff in the garbage fly so much more and actually homogenize our you know our planet so the only the only thing I hold hope for is that in I guess understanding that we're more the same than we are different that we might have actually sown the seeds for how we might work together because that's going to be the only thing that will get us out of this is we actually can't do it as nation-states we have to do it as a species And in the end of it, it's a species survival moment and a civilization survival moment, not a Gaia or Earth survival moment, because really, she does not care.
0: Rowena, how do you talk to people about foresight or futures work? when they possibly don't understand what it is?
1: So I guess the short answer to that is I probably don't. For me, foresight is an innate capacity that we have as individuals. So I actually don't need people to understand that, to have them have a conversation with me about futures and how they could be different. So my observation would be as individuals in our personal lives, we understand foresight without ever giving it that name. So people will plan to get married and have children and buy a house and retire and do all those things that we know have future at the base of it. As soon as you get into organisations or as soon as I go into an organisation and start talking to people about how the future might be different, if I whack foresight around that, I find the conversation becomes problematic. So the way I tend to phrase it is, more around you know what are the things that you would like to do as a group or as an organization that you can't do now and what do you think gets in your way so it's again starting where they are and opening them up to the possibilities that there might be a multiplicity of ways they could go rather than just one so I guess you know one of the things I needed to do early on was have my five second you know 30 second foresight is blah 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 and I had that can't tell you what it is now but I did have it but I found it almost useless because I didn't actually have anybody that ever responded well to it. I find people respond really well to... How might things be different and what might that look like? Um, That's a generative conversation that I've had with people all over the world, really. I find people uh, respond well to a conversation about, you know, what are the problems that you see here and now and how might they roll out in the future and is that the future that we want? And if the answer's no, how might that be different? Some of the work I've done with groups and teams of people in organisations has been about that. So especially in parts of organisations where they can see disruption. So, you know, in a corporate records function, for instance, that can see that all the paper they're handling is suddenly going to be digitised and they're not going to have jobs. For them, the future doesn't exist. So opening the conversation up about, well, how can can you think differently about what you do to see how you might, you know, pivot or shift your, your career or your work to still deliver the service or create the value that you do now or something like it, how might that look? Now, people get that. They absolutely get it. But if I'd gone in there and said, okay, well, let's talk about foresight and how we might use this to help you create a different career path for yourselves, I wouldn't have seen that landing. So it does depend. I mean, I think for some people, they're ready for the conversation and When I was in the Swinburne space, I would have people coming towards me wanting to have a foresight conversation, but they were fairly rare.
0: So back to what you said about the world is not having a conversation about the future that you think it needs to have. How do you then, do you then talk to people about a conversation that they don't
1: want to have? So I guess that's where I've landed on that is is having so rather than going where we've gone previously to the visioning conversation so rather than talking about the star trek future or the you know day after tomorrow future or whatever other future tropes there are out there in the world rather than having that conversation i guess where my language and and thinking and emphasis is going is you know what are the problems we've got a climate emergency you know we've got 65 percent of our species on the planet moving into so what are the things that we're actually facing today and if they continue to roll out is that the future that we want to, to live in and I guess that's why the work that Sharma's doing I find interesting because he's looking at societal transformation where for so long he's been talking about individual and group transformation and I think they're the conversation so rather than saying there's the vision of where we're heading. It's a conversation about how do we change the system that we're in to spin it into something that will be positive for more of us. And I think it's more the conversations I want to have are the conversations around what are the principles or values that we agree on that need to move those futures forward. So, you know, do we want... So I've been doing some wonderful work around, you know, what does a more humanist workplace look like? So and there are lots of people in this space. I went to a fabulous conference last year, business romantic conference, where we talked about death. I mean, we talked about what it is to deal with death in a workplace because death is part of life. And so I think the unpacking of, you know, what are the things we've got in front of us and how might they roll is really where the the space is for me rather than yeah, let's create the vision and what that looks like. That's important, but I think there's something about the urgency with which we need to act that maybe we haven't got that luxury anymore.
0: So Robyn, a final question is generally an open question which, which we just let the guest talk about something. but i I'd like to hear you explain hope theory and how hope theory, because it is one of the things that sits that sits as a fundamental uh, bedrock in your practice. to explain hope theory, but then to go back and how you explained the future and how, as you explained the emerging future, you possibly could have sounded like someone who was being hopeless.
1: <laughs> yes. So I guess what I mean where hope theory sits for me is as I started to understand that I didn't think the future was looking all that rosy I went looking for ways of you know not being hopeless so I went looking at optimism and pessimism was where I started and any time I look at op- optimism or pessimism I am a pessimist I don't believe that things will be better in the future which is one of the you know the things that they measure you on so That didn't actually seem all that useful because, again, I still have to get out of bed in the morning. So for me, what hope theory does is give me a framework to think about the future in a way that I feel like I have some sort of agency or power to change it. So hope theory, in its essence, is a three-part theory that talks about how individuals create goals or identify goals, how they choose pathways or ways of achieving those goals, and how much empowerment or agency they feel about those goals and those pathways. So the three parts of hope theory, agency, goals and pathways, all work together. So when you have high hope, you have a high ability to set goals, a high ability to discern and choose pathways and a high ability to feel agentic and empowered about doing those things when you're falling down on one of those three aspects then your level of hope drops and so it's a diagnostic tool that's used in psychology to help I guess therapists work with individuals around you know developing their pathway thinking or their ability to set goals or how much agency or power they feel they have in situations but it's also a theory that's had um, 30 years of experiential research around it in groups so there's been a lot of work done around is hope transmittable you know so if you work for someone with high hope does that make a difference to the levels of hope you know in the people that report to them and it does so if you have high hope people either in your family or in your team or in your organization they will actually bring the level of hope up in those people around them and I found that really interesting because when I started to delve into you know, how societies hold images of the future, which is some of the stuff that Polak talks about and also Sarkar talks about in their work, it came to me, well, how do we do that? You know, how do we hold on to an image of the future and make it come about? So I did some research into what entrepreneurs do, for instance, you know, how do they hold a goal that's so clear and continue to to move through lots of challenges often and feel powerful about doing that? And so, as I unpacked it through the lens of hope theory, it became obvious to me that entrepreneurs or anybody who's got, I guess, a a goal they believe in, hope theory helps to understand about you know how, how they keep going because what what you learn through hope theory is that once somebody's had one successful goal pursuit, so they set a goal, they've identified a pathway and they've achieved it, that actually gives them positive emotional effects. So it builds their positive emotion to the next goal pursuit. So they actually re-goal and will give themselves a stretch goal that's further out than the, the one they originally set and they'll actually come up with more pathways and they'll feel more powerful and so you go on. So for me it was was actually fundamental around how I parent, funnily enough, as well, because I have children who I'm not a tiger mother, but we talk about, you know, well, what are you going to learn? Well, what have you learned? And what does that look like? And how might you do things differently? We do all of that reflective, I guess, conversation. But we also talk about, well, what might be the goal that you might set and if that's the goal then how might you get there and have you got everything you need in order to achieve that and if you haven't how might you get those things now this isn't the language I use with them obviously I'm not a I'm their mother not a therapist but that's the um that's the basis through which we have or the lens through which we have the conversation so back to your question about how am I hopeful rather than hopeless I guess for me understanding that the goal is not the one that I want. So the future that I see playing out is not the one that I want. So I need to re-goal around, you know, well, what is the future that I want to bring about? I see that we have enough humanity and joy and love in the world that we actually could have a future that we build from, you know, understanding that maybe our capitalist society in which we're all cogs in a machine, so some of the metaphors we're using around how we think about ourselves might be less than helpful. And if we shifted some of those we could have quite a different type of future where we're living within our limits and we're more connected to the people around us and, you know, globally. We understand there's more that bring us together than divide us. We fall back onto the wisdom of those First Nations that came before us and actually learn the lessons that they have. And, you know, especially in this country, we've got 60,000 years of history we could go back to. So I just think, for me, hope theory says to me, Yes, you might not like where you're going, but you can always re-goal and you can always come up with new ways of new pathways to get there. So I think I said in one of my previous questions, one of the things I've really noticed that's different between how I do what I do and how other people I've worked with operate is that ability to hold pathways lightly. So to be pathway agnostic, because I think that's really important. The agency thing can be really contextual. I mean, there's obviously some places that I've been and worked where I've had almost no agency. So then I guess having that hope theory in my back pocket means I understand what that is. So when I'm I'm not feeling empowered, it doesn't cripple me. I just, I understand that's what it is. I understand that it's contextual and either I move my context, which I have done, or I try and shift it up a bit so that I have more power in that situation. So hope theory is as much you know it's my bread and butter it's the stuff I fall back on because it's one of the only things I've come across that makes continuous sense at whatever level of aggregation the other reason I love it and this is one of my favorite stories but the other reason I love it is when I fell across it in some obscure journal on the web in about 2003 I shot an email off to the Uh, Rich Snyder, who was the the professor that had been doing this work for 30 years and said to him that I was a foresight student. I was really interested in how we could use hope theory to help create hopeful futures, preferred futures in, in individuals and communities. And was there any of his work that he could point me to to help me understand more about the theory and how it rolled and, you know, help me understand how I might apply it in my practice. And he FedExed me copies of everything he'd written for the last 20 years And it just turned up. (laughs) I just thought that is amazing because this was before a time where he could have just, you know, emailed me a link to his online, you know, repository, but he had printed copies of all of his papers that he sent. And I just think, you know, that's it, isn't it? Is that you, you embody the change you want to see in the world. And when somebody, you know, puts their hand up and says, I think you've said something that's really interesting. What can you give me that will help me? And you just over deliver. So, you know, for me, I love it and I use it almost every day.
0: I want to ask you a follow-on question from it because there's an interesting dynamic which I think, because you mentioned developmental psychology, this thing of re of uh, goals reinforcing identity of self and then re-goaling, there's actually a point at where that breaks down because the sense of self breaks down. Yep. So you actually don't have greater goal identity because you suddenly understand in the thing, those goals you were setting no longer are the goals that seem to be satisfactory.
1: I'd like you to talk to that. So I guess that is a dynamic that's alive and well, absolutely. So for me, I guess I don't, I don't look at goal, at hope theory as a way that we move through the levels of development. For me, it's a theory or a dynamic that sits at the level that you're at. So at some point, absolutely, it will break down. Where I've experienced that, what i found useful is I actually fall back on pathways and agency. So I find for a time that I can get through just focusing on whatever the next thing is right ahead of me, <laughs> which is, you know, the chop, chop wood, carry water, you know, do the work that's in front of you. And actually don't worry, because it's it's knowing that the dynamic happens at the level that you're stable at, means that as you're transitioning from one level of development to another, that letting it go for a while is actually okay because it will come back.
0: Okay, Roman, look, thank. it's been an absolute delight to have you come and talk to us and, and be part of the FuturePod conversation, so thanks very much.
1: Thanks for having me and thanks for doing this too. This has been really great. Computer, I think what you're doing is fantastic for the field and I'm really looking forward to hearing them.
0: This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.